Hello everyone and welcome back to the Tiny Activist Podcast. My name is Alyssa and I will be your host. If you're new here, this is a podcast where we interview local activists on their journey and look at their local work addressing various world issues faced by both humanity and the environment. I hope to equip you with relevant knowledge, resources, and tools so that you can go out into the world and help make it a better place. Welcome back to our third episode of the Tiny Activist Podcast. Before I start, I just want to acknowledge the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lenapewak, and Attawandran peoples who lived, cultivated, and prospered on this land that I'm on for thousands of years. I want to acknowledge the hardships and tribulations that Indigenous peoples have experienced and continue to experience from the colonization of this land and commit this podcast to bringing awareness to the continued injustices faced by Indigenous peoples. Today, I am joined by two incredible women, Grace Young and Serena Mendezabal. I have had the privilege of working with both of them this past year on Western's Climate Crisis Coalition, and I am continually amazed by their advocacy, leadership, and commitment to change. Grace is currently beginning her master's in feminist research, focused on the status of Canadian women in the energy sector, looking at barriers to green jobs and the impact of young women in the energy transition. Grace works as Chapter Project Assistant at Student Energy, and she also sits on the REES Student Advisory Board, a new support and reporting platform for students facing sexual violence on Canadian campuses, aiming to eradicate rape culture that is also prevalent across Canadian campuses. Serena is a Cayuga Panamanian woman from the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. She's also beginning her master's in geography and environment with a focus on Indigenous health. Throughout university, Serena has worked on projects in her home community, such as the World Indigenous Peoples Conference on Education, Education, Youth Solar Energy Program, and the Six Nations Community Plan. At Western, Serena has assisted on the We Live This Way Before project with Tobique First Nations and the Smoke Signals Radio Archive project through community-based participatory research. This past year, she hosted Western's Student Walkout for Wet'suwet'en this past March, Serena currently sits on Six Nations Ogwadenidao Child Welfare Commission, the International Advisory Committee for a Shared Future, a National Indigenous Health Renewable Energy Research Project, and is vice chairing the 7Gen Indigenous Youth Energy Summit partnered with Student Energy. Grace and Serena also co-founded the Student Energy Chapter at Western and continue to advocate for climate change through Indigenous and feminist perspectives. Additionally, they will both be working as TAs this year for Intro to Indigenous Studies and Intro to Women's Studies. Welcome, Grace and Serena. Hi. Thanks for having us, Alyssa. Thank you, Tiny Activist Podcast, for having us. I'm so excited. Yes, I'm so excited. Um, And I'm excited to dive into your journey a little bit here. so maybe first we could just talk a little bit about like yourselves and your journey to activism. When did you start advocating for these issues and why? Um, this is a great, <laughs> it's a good question. It's kind of a big question. I think um, we, we tend to, we each have kind of a different background coming to this, but then we also have, I guess, a bit of like a story or um, understanding of how we like came and found each other through this. Um, Personally, I, I mean, I was raised um, by parents who like were pretty feminist um, and pretty, I would say, progressive with political issues. So I was introduced to some of this stuff, but at a very surface level, um, at a very surface level from a young age. And then I remember getting like introduced to feminism in high school um, 
without realizing how like one dimensional that feminism was, but um, kind of getting really pissed off for the first time and like feeling those, it kind of that like recognition, like understanding that sexism was something that existed and the patriarchy was something that existed was really infuriating. Um, and I just remember that being like one of the first, the first things I felt like really like deep inside my bones of being just so angry. Um, but yeah, I'm, and then I'll let Serena chat a bit about her. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I, I guess I've never really considered this a journey to activism altogether. I was born to an urban indigenous woman and an immigrant from Panama um, who were both actually met in Horizons, the youth homeless shelter in Toronto. So from there, my life has kind of been um, learning to understand the implications of which my family has been put into and the roots of causes of why, the socioeconomic factors why, um, and having to grow up watching my parents work very hard. Uh, I knew there were reasons that I couldn't understand necessarily when I was younger why that was happening um, until we moved back into my home community. We moved to Brantford, which is beside Six Nations, and my mom came back and learned the Mohawk language. Uh, my mom is part Mohawk. And that was the first time we started to be embraced with my culture and my people um, and my language, which actually introduced my family, my mom and me to, we were, um, it was the youth center, rally for youth center in Six Nations. So that was the first time um, I had seen collective action in its form. And I watched different people from my mom's language program and my mom advocate for youth center in Six Nations a youth center in Six Nations that would benefit the youth because there is not many resources for youth in the community. Um, so from there, that was rallies and organizing meetings and posters and um, just creating these visions of a future that we all wish for with the minds of so many different people. Um, and that really set a stone to know, understand the importance of collective action. So from there, I kind of didn't have an outlet in high school with friends or that many people. So I went into local politics. Um, local politics gave me the in to understand the issues that was affecting my own community of Brantford and to understand that you can make change at a small level. Um, I had those influences and I could started to understand reasons of why my family was the way they were, um, which I had never been given throughout my life. So going off to university, I think it was the biggest part for me was I was starting to learn all these different things, these, these root causes of the problems I was seeing, such as capitalism, colonialism, um, understanding my rights as an Indigenous woman too within this context, and then being able to put all of this education and resources that I had gained while being in London and to apply it to my own life and understanding of why how i am and where i am the way i am today or how i am the way i am today i'm really bad anyways yeah i think it's <laughs> i think that's like the deeper understanding of it was something that um something that really came to me in university because i think when they when when you learn about racism or well you don't learn about colonialism in, in high school but when you learn about um the existence of indigenous people in um in high school and elementary school and in the canadian school system um and when you talk about racism and you talk about climate change everything is from a very very surface level um surface level standpoint and you know we're always taught that like this exists racism is something that exists 
terms such as colonialism, white supremacy, or, you know, the patriarchy have never been used in a high school setting, at least in my high school setting. But you, you just, you learn that these things exist, but you never learn why. And then I came to university, um, realized that I was an angry feminist, um, as I was deemed in high school for protesting a dress code, um, realizing that, you know, things that we were taught to accept as like young women being socialized as young women and sexualized as young women um those experiences in high school are things that i think every woman experiences as a, like as a young girl but we don't have the language to name what it is um and so i think serena and i also like we always talk about this aha moment and how there's like you you come to a place where you can you have the knowledge to identify these issues in society and you know they have to be connected. You realize that like, there's a reason that if you're a racialized individual, you experience sexism differently than a white woman, but there's you don't have the language to name it. And then I felt as soon as I came to university in women's studies, I was able to like, I, I was taught why these things were so interconnected and Straight and I would always like come home from class, having been in an indigenous studies classroom and a women's studies classroom, talk about these issues. And then we were both so like interested and passionate and upset, upset and fucking angry <laughs> that we'll come home and talk about it all again. So only taking that in of like this anger that we gained throughout, it created a beautiful friendship first between us two that we, we could share these same kind of values. I'd never met someone like that. And I think that's the first thing of like why I was able to use my voice in this context is I was given the education I was given then the personal experience and I was given the support system of having grace and having um, those kind of conversations that we we don't necessarily get all the time um, it's like from these conversations it's really understanding your place against the state and how the state views you through a days of race and class. And I think that's where all our work comes down to that context of understanding that relationship to the state and the relationships we have within our institutions and how this creates consequences for the rest of the world around us, um, both animate and inanimate. Yeah, and I think you get to a place where you realize that you're either a profitable pawn to the capitalist patriarchy or you're marginalized and exploited and you either give up willingly and submit to oppression or you get angry and you yell and you protest and you fight and you because there's only so much you can bottle up the anger at the in the middle of our kitchen island there's only so many conversations <laughs> we can have by two before we reach a tipping point and we reach that tipping point of like this does nothing us to just having these conversations in our kitchen we need to then take action and go further and figure out what do we do next we have all this information we have all these resources now we've gained this this power and it was really figuring out, okay, where do we put our power now? Awesome. Wow. Oh my gosh. You guys have a crazy journey and thanks. Thanks so much for sharing. I feel like something unique about each of your journeys is kind of like the seed was planted very young and like you kind of have this like coming of, you know, like of realizations and stuff. Whereas I feel like mine was a little different where I just like, I came to university and I had all these experiences and I'm still in this like learning process and like learning about the intersectionality and like, so it's really unique and, and, and I'm excited to unpack it a little bit more. Um, so 
So speaking about kind of like your power and where you wanted to take the action next, I wanted to talk about when you guys co-founded Student Energy and you had some amazing initiatives last year, like the Net Zero pitch and like engaging awareness events. So could you talk about why you wanted to start the club and like any barriers you faced? I'll go, I, yeah, I can say this really quickly. Um, so as you can see, Grace and I both came from different backgrounds with, I had an indigenous perspective, she had more feminist perspective, um, but I had, we had both been really interested within the conversation of climate change. And one time I went to this, I went to the first seven gen, the indigenous youth energy summit, and I met student energy, the organization, which we're so lucky to be working with today. Um, and I saw the conversations at the summit that were happening and I was blown away and I said this is Western doesn't have anything like this we need to bring this back to Western um, seeing the conversations in the intersectionality of the energy transition indigenous sovereignty water security we don't have an outlet at Western so I came back I it was like a two-day trip in the Calgary airport trying to get home but when I got home I was like grace I have this awesome idea I had been um invited to try and start this chapter from some of the workers I think she's honestly great Olivia Grace's Olivia, boss Olivia. right now <laughs> Um, but the chapters program, this is kind of where we all started. And I came home to Grace and I said, this is an amazing opportunity to ha we have to get involved with an organization and bring these conversations to Western, um, something that hadn't been happening. Well, I think this was in our fourth year. So we had been there for three years and we didn't have the right kind of platform in those three years to talk about the issues we wanted to talk about. Yeah, I, it was like, it was such an incredible realization and honestly it was just it was a sense of support when there was this international organization that was focused on educating students and young people all over the globe on energy issues and empowering students um, to take action within their own communities on energy solutions and um, just engaging with the sustainable and equitable energy transition and having, coming from a background of indigenous studies and gender studies, it was, I felt like anytime we wanted to speak to climate change, we had to justify our position to be able to speak to that because who, who thinks feminism or indigenous sovereignty is relevant to climate change? I mean, it most definitely is, but the people with the power to make those big changes kind of don't give a fuck about it. Um, so it was, it was like, it was just so, almost cathartic that this big organization was, we didn't have to explain why we wanted to be a part of it or why we were passionate about it. They actually loved the fact that we had these backgrounds that were more interdisciplinary because student, yeah, like it is so interdisciplinary. That's the point of student energy is bringing students together across disciplines, across the world. Um, so it was just this opportunity to explore that passion for, energy access and all of those things that are so directly related to climate change and racial injustice and gender injustice and explore them further, become more educated on energy at the intersection of indigenous sovereignty and feminism. And it was just a great experience for us, I think. Wow, oh my gosh, I didn't know that um, student energy had this like such rich background. So that's crazy. That's no so student crazy. energy. <laughs> Um, so I guess we can, we, I want to dive into a little bit more about barriers and any challenges you guys have faced advocating for these issues and specifically, how do you make space 
um, in discussions and, and especially like on these such intersectional topics. I feel like I'm still trying to find my voice and like how I can play a role. Obviously I can play a role, but you know what I mean? How do I find space and make space? Okay, so I guess that kind of starts with our largest barrier or the largest challenge in itself for me, um, and I'm not going to speak for Grace, but I believe this is probably the same for Grace. <laughs> um, after the fact of getting people to even listen to you, to believe that what you have to say is important, to believe that what you're trying to share with them is something relevant that they should care about, that is in itself the biggest challenge. And just trying to, like what you're saying, trying to position yourself within the conversation is the first battle. Um, yeah, people, oh, oh sorry, oh. I can keep going. Um, personally, as a woman, it always continuously feels like I have to pitch myself to people. Like I'm pitching my ideas, I'm pitching my projects, I'm pitching uh, my beliefs as an indigenous uh, Panamanian woman. I'm constantly having to get people to listen. And sometimes it feels like when I'm in the same room as men making these decisions, men can say certain one sentence and it's as if they shit gold coming from the background they do the privilege they do I say one thing and I'm constantly just trying to have people to believe me in these conversations to listen so the, that in itself I think is a large barrier from the start yeah I think you're I mean any woman that has an opinion is automatically coined as an angry woman um but I think it's about learning to kind of say like, fuck you, I am an angry woman. And like recognize, like people are gonna hate you. People are going to be so up in arms about what you have to say because people are so attached to their privilege and they're so scared that, you know, just giving a wee bit of human rights to half of the world is going to like somehow position them in like an marginalized state all of a sudden. And that's not how it works. And it's like, it's so, it's just, it's so adamant or people are so adamant to discredit you and women face this all the time but like this shit is so emotional it's yeah i'm gonna get really upset talking about the impending doom of climate change because it's fucking scary i also have the facts at the end of the day to prove it though and i it's not just a subjective opinion mm -hmm. it's real this is happening and i can have these emotions because they're completely validated by the fucking destruction of our planet yeah and i don't think people necessarily understand that it also like we're so emotional about this shit because we're pretty fucking educated on it. Like we know what we're talking about. So we know how, like <laughs> how impactful this stuff is going to be and, and how like the, exactly the consequences that not only we're going to face, but everybody in the world is going to have to wrap their heads around at some point, especially considering that like these effects are here and we are no longer on a trajectory where, you know, we have that much time to no create Trump gets room. in. We're not, facing our meeting our goals for the Paris Agreement if Trump gets in. And that's just the reality we have to take as a global problem. This is something much larger than just um, a president getting elected. It's the fucking system as a whole not not do doing enough for its people. I don't know. Like Yeah. And it's just like even at the even at the end of the day too, like even here at Western, people will lump us together as like the two angry socialists who are like too progressive or who have like radical ideas and are gonna just stir the pot. Um, but I think it's so like, it's just so frustrating because people are like, I almost feel like we've, we're at a point where people are so scared of radical knowledge, but it's like, I don't wanna call it radical. It shouldn't be radical. No, it's just like, understanding the roots of the problems in which we see in the world. And that's 
that at the end of the day, people just need to understand it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, having, taking a degree in indigenous studies and a degree in feminist studies, two things that are considered very radical and knowledge is power. And, you know, a state is only going to like universities are state institutions and a state is only going to educate you on how to dismantle it to a certain point. Like education is powerful and people don't want to talk about these things because they're scared of them. And well, yeah, because they're scared of understanding the relationship to the institution itself and having to hold the institution accountable when it's, when you think it's providing you so much of these things, but you really need to step back and understand what's actually going on. Um, and then I think the last thing we want to talk about for barriers is imposter syndrome in itself. I constantly, I feel like a lot of women definitely face, if you're a woman in academia, we've heard you probably face imposter syndrome. And I feel like we constantly are sitting back asking ourselves, why am I not doing this? Why, wh where should I be going? What should I do next? How should I? And then I stop myself and I'm, I, I'm scared because I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough to be doing that. I shouldn't be doing that. I'm not the right voice. I'm not the right person. You really need to be positioning yourself um, and you really need to see that you are the only person stopping yourself from doing what you want to do at the end of the day. I feel like especially for our generation Gen Z, we are constantly seeing ourselves as these online platforms and we need to really step out of these brands, step out of these ways of knowing and look back about why do you want to do things? What is the reason? What are the, what are the qualities in which you think this will get something done? And you need to look at the bare bones of these projects. Um, and, and instead of all the other stuff that comes in of like identity and social media and all of this other portions that come into these things that fester in you um, of why you're not doing certain things and you just need to go for it. Yeah, imposter syndrome is deadly, especially when you have like, it's so hard not to internalize what the world is telling you when you are coined as, you know, a radical feminist or an angry woman or whatever the fuck it is. Like you when you're being told that constantly and you know that's how people are viewing you it's hard not to not be to yourself as that and yeah. not to internalize it and not to take that in but I guess if you're hearing this from us don't because it's stupid and it's worthless and, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not anything um and I guess that's like a personal barrier and then not to even mention that funding lack of resources people and institutions who want to help you those are just some of the little barriers of organizing and trying to create collective action um that are like little issues you always will run into always <laughs> my gosh. I, I just want to disclaimer and say Grace and Serena were super nervous to do this, but they have so much good information. You guys have such good advice. Like no one has ever said these things to me. And like, I'm sure like I'm, I'm educated, but obviously not on like specific issues like this. So it's, it's great to hear, hear the advice that I guess I needed as like a woman and, and trying to deal with some of these issues and like have this podcast. So Yes, yeah. this is exactly what I'm, it's, it's nice to see women taking on these issues, taking on these platforms and creating more spaces for voices and, and people who are wanting to create a better future. It's just powerful. This is supporting women. Oh, like, <laughs> that TikTok trend. That's like, I love it when women, I just love it when women do anything. <laughs> that's how I feel all the time. I love it when women just do it. Just do everything. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So I guess switching gears a little bit. Um, to your masters. So they're obviously both focusing on very important, very real issues that integrate the sustainability and advocating for human rights and indigenous rights and feminism. Um, so 
Could you guys talk about a little bit of the intersection of your masters and why it's important to integrate these, these issues and like what kind of things you'll be looking at in your masters? I know I briefly discussed it, but you want to talk a bit more about it? Um, yeah, well, I mean, all of these things and all of these issues have the same oppressor. The heteronormative capitalist white patriarchy is <laughs> causing all of these issues. We just need to dissect how that is happening in interconnected ways. Yes, this leaves Black, Indigenous people of color to be faced with not only the violence of systemic racism, but to face the direct implication of capital greed exploiting the planet and how and leaving them to be the ones to figure out how they will be fixing and creating these solutions. Environmental injustice has always been an issue and it's always been a fight that's been taken on by indigenous communities, by black communities, by people of color, and by the most marginalized communities. And they're always the ones to be at the front lines of these fights, quite literally at the front lines of these fights for everyone else. The climate crisis has always hit people of color the hardest in the US and around the world, and especially in Canada. And I mean, it's true in urbanized cities, it's true in rural areas. Um, when marginalized communities are like experiencing hotter temperatures, they're experiencing deadly heat waves, they're experiencing environmental racism from landfills and dumping grounds and toxic waste, and like it, the list goes on and on and on. Industrialization is was the tipping point of the fossil fuel industry starting to become the biggest emitter and one of the largest contributors to our global carbon emissions, and it's just, it's everything is so connected because these communities are facing these direct implications first. Yeah, which is honestly kind of where I started within my master's research of, um, it's parent, it's as much as we can see, this is happening within Puerto Rico where Hurricane Maria caused thousands of deaths and we're seeing it in Central America where we can see the migrant vans going. And we we're, we don't have these questions of why are, what's, why is ice happening? But we're not looking at the, even the direct causes of these people in Central America are migrating because of climate-fueled um, issues happening within their own communities, and we're not even talking about that. So I think we need to then recognize, and when we come back to these conversations, is also looking about how this is happening within our own communities. And Canada is no... Um, Canada is no... Exception. <laughs> yeah, Canada is no exception to uh, environmental racism at all. We can see that... Um, through Amjuwang, just a community, and Oneida. Amjuwang First Nation, which is in Sarnia and also known as Chemical Valley. Uh, Oneida, the nation of the Thames, who right near Western, there is a dumping site with on their community that is infiltrating their soils and their land. My supervisor, and kind of where I've begun my research and why I decided to go into this, is my supervisor, Dr. Diana Lewis, and um, worked with Pictou Landing First Nation. And Pictou Landing First Nation was subject to the pulp and paper mill on their territory that um, infected their water. They call it the AC, AC, which is also known as Boat Harbor for uh, people in Nova Scotia. This water had detrimental health effects on the people. And with that, I was very interested to look deeper within my profs research and understanding the the implications has had on the community itself and the health effects has had on the community itself because one sometimes when we look at health it can be very biomedical one-dimensional and indigenous people do not view our health and well-being in that way we look at it through a physical mental emotional spiritual way of being and that's not i'm not trying to broaden but i feel like a lot of indigenous peoples our cultures surround around these like holistic ways of health and so d's project um my supervisor was looking at 
how this in fact how this affected their health and she was able to see that when the fish were dying that the fish were dying in the water of boat harbor the elders had nothing to say their language communicated to i am sorry so it was the same they would have said to someone else and it's what they were saying to the to the fish and to the land and is trying to understand those so right there i was understanding that this relationship grew way deeper than just using something as their food using something as their profit this was a relationship that was ruined through environmental implications and consequences of the pulp and paper mill so seeing that i decided that um i wanted to continue working in community-based participatory research i think that's the only way in which you can do indigenous community work because it needs to be coming from the community and by the community. Um, so I, for the last two years, I've been working with Tobik First Nation with Diana Lewis on her project uh, with a shared future that's looking at how um, Indigenous knowledge systems have the potential to create reconciliation with ourselves, the land, the air, the water. And A Shared Future is this larger project, and I'm currently on We Lived This Way Before, which is with Tobik First Nation in New Brunswick, the Wolostuic peoples. Um, and we will, so they, back in the 1950s, were subject to a dam on their territory, um, on the water. So the dam, it, Tobik First Nation is where St. John River and the Tobik River meet. So it's very beautiful pace. It was a place of where their people came and they hunted, they fished, they lived off the land. Um, and this dam was put in and it infiltrated the waters. So from there, um, there has been impacts that haven't been... Um, talked about as much and except for within the community so this project came about because Tobik First Nation um, has been accepted for the Loris program with New Brunswick Power and is going to be creating a wind farm on their territory and is going to be creating the wind farms the first of this energy transition they would want to take they want solar um, and they want to go further with certain things so we will be looking at through my project um, of understanding because of these implications of the history with the dam and the wind farm i was really interested to see the relationship between energy and the health of the people in tobik first nation so we'll be looking at um energy if energy is a determinant of health within the community and trying because that's actually never been academia is way far behind because all social media knows pipelines affect us uh developments affect us it all affects us but academia still hasn't seemed to put that out there, especially through an Indigenous perspective. So that's what this community is going to be doing. And we're also going to be looking at free prior and informed consent within um, development and energy context. Because it's important to start having these conversations, we need to look at the root of the problems that we see within our infrastructure and energy transition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and to, to follow that, um, talking about energy and looking at ways we can you know, take various solutions to energy in order to transition towards a sustainable and equitable future. My um, my master's research is kind of focus, focusing on how we can um, look at the energy sector in Canada and kind of take a case study and look at the status of women in the energy sector in Canada. Um, looking at Canada specifically, I'm really interested to see how we can take feminist solutions to energy problems because, and which sounds so scary to people, but I mean, taking a feminist approach to, to something really just means interrogating the way it's always been traditionally done and looking at the systems that it upholds and looking at who is most affected, who, who are the marginalized communities that are the ones to you know, pick up the mess when, when these solutions don't actually work. Um, 
So I'm I'm really interested to see, you know, why is there a, a drop off rate within you know the fossil fuel fossil fuel sector when they claim to hire so many women yet there's no women in leadership positions? Why are women leaving these companies? Why are women um, not feeling as though they're able to openly join the transition towards a sustainable future within the energy sector? Where is that imposter syndrome? Where does that come from? Is that something that we were speaking about earlier? Um, those are some of the things that I'm interested to kind of look at. And also just look at how youth are using feminist mobilization to combat the climate crisis. How are we distilling feminist methodologies, feminist knowledge, feminist theories through social media now that everything is more accessible? How are we distilling that kind of knowledge from the academy down to the youth who are on the front lines of these problems and who will be the ones to transition our energy sector. They're the next generation that's going to be in these leadership positions in a couple years. And it's just, it's absolutely wild to see how revolutionary young women are in this movement and how their way of thinking from a feminist perspective is going to change our world and going to be the thing that tips Canada to a more sustainable and equitable future. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm so excited to see what both of you have in store and especially like women in leadership. Oh my gosh, we've even seen like with COVID, right? Any of the countries that have women in leadership, they've done significantly better with their um, infections and with their the, the death. So like, I don't know, it'll be interesting. Who knows? We'll, we'll see what happens, but I think we know what's going to happen. Um, so you guys are super passionate. Um, and obviously there's so many issues that you're covering. Do you ever experience like activist burnout and, and how do you stay motivated to address all of these, these issues? Um, so we were actually, we were talking about this question a bit earlier. Um, and I, I think burnout is a kind of a hard way to look at it. I mean, I think for anyone who holds a certain amount of privilege within a movement, it's less about burnout and more about finding ways to foster and nurture empathy and make that long lasting. Yeah, and for Black, Indigenous, people of color organizers, they are doing all the work. So we need to recognize that these Black, Indigenous, people of color organizers are doing all the same work that we are doing um, within the same context. So social media, marketing, comms, organizing, getting people together, uh, while having to also deal with the trauma and having to prove their humanity as a person internally and externally in this within the colonial state, um, prove that you even have the right to take this power back, prove to yourself that you have the right to take this power back. So it's a lot of also external work and doing all that, but it's so much identity and internal um, reflection that goes by while trying to make sure that you know your place in this conversation. Um, people who live these experiences every day, empathy is not necessarily something to gain, but a collective feeling among their communities that they've been put forth who have to face these consequences of systemic environmental racism. So empathy just comes because that's our initial response. We are positioned from the start within these conversations and we just have to navigate them. Um, this is not something new. This is a generational fight for many communities and peoples who are the first to face state crime and are the first on the front line. And we need to recognize that these implications, they're not, they're not tired after just protesting. They're tired for the ways in which their communities and their people have been taken advantage of and look to be at the bottom of the barrel. And no, treat it as though they are at the bottom of the barrel within society. Um, yeah, and I, I think too, it's it's difficult because like 
you when you come to when you come to something and whether it's a movement or a protest or you're posting on social media or whatever kind of activism or advocacy you're you're doing for those of us that come to come to these things with a certain amount of privilege it's less about burnout or activism burnout and more so about i think like obviously a lot of these things elicit an emotional response um and so you know there's certain things that i if i'm constantly consuming um a lot of media or social media or just like immersed through whether it's class or through my own um my own research or my own education when you're constantly immersed in this stuff it can be emotional to read about and elicit an emotional experience um but i i wouldn't necessarily call it burnout but just realizing when you need to be consciously consuming this stuff and consciously educating yourself there's no you know, if, if you're constantly scrolling through everything and trying to read everything and trying to be the most educated, you're never actually going to absorb anything or be productive in any part of that. So I think we just all have to, you know, take care of our mental health in a very broad sense, like across this, it's not just when it comes to activism, but, you know, across everything and tune into what your body's feeling and recognize when, okay, I, I can't be the savior for everything. Nobody can be. It doesn't really address the weight of a problem to think that you can come in and be the most educated, the most like the the most equipped to deal with this. None of us are. None of us have that, especially if you come from the side of the oppressor to a certain movement, you are not going to be the one who is dictating the solutions to these problems. So it's just about kind of shutting up and listening and educating yourself in a conscious way so that you're not just trying to absolve yourself from the problem by being like the most woke or the most educated. Everyone has a role within these issues and that's something when you look at people on the front line, when you look at people in the institution, when you look at that, everyone has a role to take within these conversations and you just need to be able to understand your own so you don't face this burnout of um, the anxieties and trauma that Black, Indigenous people of color have always experienced for just existing in the age of colonialism and having to fight the state. Um, I think that's what we need to recognize is this is something that is not new. Yeah, and I think it's also like, I'm not trying to say that, you know, like, if, if you're a white person showing up to Black Lives Matter protests, you're, you don't get to go on social media and be like, I'm experiencing allyship burnout. Like, that doesn't exist. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's a whole other conversation, <laughs> conversation, but that like, you're, you're allowed to be, we are all existing under an oppressive state, whether you are like the most privileged white man in the world, if you're a cis heterosexual white man, you still exist under a capitalist state that is oppressing people for its profit, whether or not you are the most, like, and that's what I think people don't necessarily recognize is that like you're allowed you it is exhausting to exist in a world that is constantly trying to you know categorize people into ways in which it can exploit them for profit but it's also it, it's acknowledging that you know when when you show up to fight for something you need to recognize that as much as you can, you know, you're fighting for yourself and you're fighting for everyone around you. The person next to you is fighting to have their experience even recognized in the broader movement as a unique experience. 
Like it's, you see this with white feminism all the time. White women are always like, I cannot deal with white liberal feminism because it's so frustrating to just like, it, it's just so uneducated. It's so uneducated. And there's no recognition for the fact that, yeah, we're all here to talk about oppression for all women. It was way easier for a rich white person to show up to this protest than it was for a trans woman to show up to this protest. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's the intersectionality of it is so important and so often overlooked in to the extent sense. that we don't even see like socioeconomic class factors of even you're just that thinking about like transportation and means of that and we need to just recognize all these little factors that come into these conversations um and for people who are going out into these 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 conversations these discussions these you need to accept that you will never be able to do enough and as your sole person you can't you won't be able to do enough to fix everything in the world but you still need to have the energy to embody anti-racism um perspectives anti-racism ways of knowing and that's how you just have to go about your life you uh, it, this is an Angela Davis quote we thought we should add in here because it really encapsulates everything that we think is you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the fucking time. This is something you just need to take in and you need to know that you alone won't be able to change the world, but maybe you can start a conversation with the person next to you and maybe they will then start a conversation with the person after that and maybe things will go. And if you can change one person's perspective that day, that's enough. I think we also have to believe that people will change their minds. People are ignorant and it's can be disgusting and heinous and you know as much as the world can be really discouraging. Um, I think the only thing that can like there's some impending doom with climate change coming that you know unless there's some very radical quick industrial mobilization the likes of which we've never seen in our lifetime unless that happens we're all fucked and we're all gonna die not to be dramatic but you know um <laughs> so you have to have some faith that people will listen and people will change because otherwise what are we like what's the point right now we're at a, like we're really at a tipping point we are at a tipping point that's what we're about to people are already bursting people are angry covid we just saw that what over two hundred thousand people have died within the states and there's no policy really backing up changes that need to be made to protect those people, um, especially those who are in lower income areas and facing the direct consequences. I like what you were saying, Serena. I think that, you know, kind of the basis for this podcast is like, we don't have the power to change the world, but we have the power to like change one person's life. We have the power to like we have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. And if you look at all these issues and like, I've had so many existential crises about this and like, you have to start somewhere. And if you let it overwhelm you to a point where you're not taking action, like that, that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, so yeah, that's, that's great advice. And, um, I guess where I want to go next is kind of like, what are your guys' plans for the future? And, and how do you commit to activism right now, especially with COVID where like in-person events and protests are, are really unsafe and and you can't be doing that kind of thing. I mean, plans for the future. I think um, I speak for both of us when, I mean, the goal is to dismantle the oppressive system and <laughs> burn it all down and build back better for everybody and recognize that, you know, there's no climate movement that doesn't also address racial inequity and indigenous sovereignty and gender inequality. 
I think that's what, when I was thinking about the last question, that's something that popped into my head of like, um, that we will never be able to do enough by ourselves. But the one thing we can do is find another person who will support you. And I think that's what we need to see is people powers where it's at. We are youth. We have so much power. We are the voices of the next generation. And we need to come together because we can lobby these governments. We can lobby these organizations if we work enough and create enough collective action that gets their attention. They have, they can't do anything except listen to us. So I think that's where it is, uh, is we need to become more radical. We need to become more angry. We need to own it and we need to mobilize it together. We need to use it to uplift black indigenous people of color who've been leading these fights, these, this fight and these conversations for centuries. This is where it's at. And we need to take it for what it is. Take everything we take this summer for what happened. Take, take for all the reflection that you've done, take it and put it somewhere now and we need to now put it into something of we can't just say all these critiques of the world and we can't just be angry at the world and we can't that's that's going to get us nowhere instead we need to now use it and create action plans actionable plans that will go forth using people as the main um focus and that's at the end of the day this is all isn't all that we're fighting for is to make a better future for the for humanity altogether for the people that we live around for that's what I see when it's like, what are our next plans is to continue to embody this, this knowledge, this power that we've been given as youth and youth who have been privileged enough to have access to this education resources. I want to take everything I've learned now and I want to put it to building back a better future for my communities, for my people, for the state sanctioned country of Canada. <laughs> I want people to feel safe and I want to be able to put that into every perspective of our work and that might now be having to adapt with COVID and how that will go and I don't even know where we're going on this. <laughs> well yeah I mean I think we've I think I speak for both of us when I know that we've we've both we've both been angry about everything we've both been upset about everything we've for the past four like three four years we've been kind of like sitting in all of this all everything that we've learned about and everything that we talk about we we've been sitting with it and as much as we have been you know trying to put it out there as best we can i feel like we we're at a point where like we've really i think hit our strides as much as you know there's there's imposter syndrome within the academy of like there's a lot of rich old white men here who probably won't like what i'm gonna have to say in a research paper um that kind of imposter syndrome i think is is still very relevant and i'm not saying we don't experience it but i think we've also come into a place where we we've, we've hit our stride of like not not giving a fuck we have no one to answer to we know where our values lie we know what we are demanding from those in power and we're kind of just like taking that we're, we're, we're cashing that in now we know what we want we know what we're demanding and we know what we expect from our government and from these institutions um and like serena said like we're coming into that power as badass educated women who are fighting for the planet and that is like, even just saying that and recognizing like that we have the power to do that is empowering, like not to sound repetitive, but like that it is, it is invigorating. I, I think Grace and I are, when we see the future, we're going to continue to keep, um, we're going to, Grace and I are going to continue to keep involving ourselves within these conversations in both the institution and outside of the institution. We're going to continue to work within our not-profit organizations to create these conversations there and, and to use their platforms and resources to branch out into a greater 
conversation, which is what we tried to do with Student Energy UW and Climate Crisis Coalition. We were trying to start these com these conversations with things we had, and and I think that's what every little thing we do goes into a piece of like how we're starting these conversations and how we're going to go about into the future. Because at the end of the day, I think Grace and I will want to be will want to create something that holds a substantial platform that we can actually start talking about these things. That isn't just um, all these different groups or all the different time why, why we need something that we can demand a future centered on climate justice on racial justice on migrant justice on indigenous sovereignty on police abolition on gender equality we demand a future centered on people and communities not just the one percent and grace and i will be fighting within whatever context we do if we want to go for a non-profit if we want to do a zine because that's also been slash also attending and uplifting community organizations community rallies community um collective action in that sense of I think just trying to not spread yourself too thin but finding what you're passionate about and finding the resources and people who also feel those ways because that's where it's at and I don't think you will get anything done being in silos by ourselves silos just really isolate us from so many different perspectives so many different experiences so many different things we need to instead build larger in build a larger movement altogether that will encapsulate these kind of conversations which I think is on the forefront and i think it's coming good good time coming and COVID is giving us i think you know we're gonna we're, we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic right now both of us doing our masters and we're just sitting here absorbing more of this knowledge and more of this education and looking to you know looking to the people that are already doing this work and seeing what's working and seeing what isn't and i feel like we're really in a place right now of like locating locating our path within this movement and where we can take our knowledge, take our experience and kind of run with that and, and be the most productive and be the most empowered. Um, and so I think it's, you know, I don't, for the lack of sounding cheesy, I think it, I do feel like big things are coming. I feel like we are taking this time right now to reflect on everything and to, you know, continue that education. And we're going to come out of it with master's degrees and be even more ready to, attack the fucking system <laughs> yeah you're so right i i can't wait to see what what you, you ladies do it's gonna be amazing um yeah that's i i'm just like mind blown i don't even know what to say because like there's so much great info and like you guys have so much great info i'm just absorbing i too am absorbing right now um i kind of wanted to switch gears a little bit um and I was wondering if we could, you know, kind of discuss the, the hate crimes and violence that are happening in the Mi'kmaq community in Nova Scotia. Um, like we, we discussed a little bit, we've seen this overt racism in the United States this summer. And I think many Canadians kind of forget that it's happening in our backyards as we speak. And like, this is not the first time, obviously, but it's, it's in media right now. And with social media being so prevalent and we're consuming so much of it. Um, it's really at the forefront and I just wanted to kind of discuss what's going on there and, and what your guys thoughts are. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that I'm going to go with something I was going to say earlier, but didn't, um, with, I find sometimes in the black lives matter movement, people are able to support black lives matter because they don't have to position themselves in the conversation. They don't have to address, um, issues within their own lives. They can just say, Hey, I support black lives. I believe they are equal when it comes to indigenous sovereignty and land back sometimes in Canada, it can create really controversial conversations because it really has to make someone position themselves as are you a settler are you not what land are you on whose land is it where do you come from and what is the conversations of this country where what is canada altogether so i think um 
it can be really difficult in Canada for people to even address that this is a problem because they don't want to address those actual identity questions within them, um, which they need to because we are seeing blatant racism and disregard in this country for Indigenous and Black lives. It's absolutely insane. Currently, there are non-Indigenous commercial fishermen in Mi'kma'ki, Nova Scotia, that are protesting the Mi'kmaq's right to moderate livelihood through the 1725 Peace and Friendship Treaty. They believe that the Spaganagadi have fronted an illegal large-scale commercial fishery when instead they have um, created a moderate livelihood fishery. That is something that was um, set out by this treaty that they could have within the first place. And so they are protesting they want the DFO to set regulations that will stop this Indigenous off-season fishing, but instead they have been um, pouring paint thinner all over them, dumping out, lighting on fire. They didn't even light on fire. They don't even know what stuff they're lighting on fire because they light on fire their own station. Um, fighting chiefs, protesting, vulgar um, language, putting plaques of wood out with fucking nails on the road so that the Mi'kmaq fishers couldn't get to their waters to to embrace the rights that which they've always had before these settlers even came. Um, and I think that's what people need to recognize is this is not only a violation of Indigenous rights in Mi'kmaq right now. There's violations with the tiny house warriors out west in the Trans Mountain Pipeline. There's violations with the wet sweat and in the coastal gas like pipeline that are there protesting putting their lives on the line. And we're having then over on the west coast of Mi'kmaq, we're having within my own community of Six Nations right now, we're trying to, our Six Nations land vendors are trying to defend the development of 1,400 homes on their traditional territories that was unseated through the Haldeman track. These are things that are happening right now within our country and we need to be putting these issues on the forefront because it really, when you look at what's happening to the Mi'kmaq, when you look at what's happening to Tiny House Ward, when you look at what's happening to Six Nations, you need to see the roots of the problems and it isn't just it isn't just a protest it isn't just an occupation it's trying to trying to have the settler state of canada recognize our rights our treaty rights our title to the land and it comes to these deeper conversations of systemic racism and um the deeper conversation of systemic racism in that just overall Canada as a fake country altogether. Um, at the end of the day, we are all treaty people and this needs to upset you. This needs to be what you're, oh, I don't need, I'm like, this just needs to upset you. That's, it, I'm good yeah. at that. <laughs> I really just went all over the place with that, but. And it's, I, it's, I'm, cause I'm, I'm from Halifax. I'm from Nova Scotia. Um, and it's so, I mean, I'm not surprised to see this not be a main topic of conversation in Nova Scotia. Um, you know, the education system doesn't teach us about it. People don't talk about it. Nova Scotia really likes to kind of position itself as like the cute little province outside of all of these issues that Ontario and Quebec and these other larger provinces have to face. Um, you know, there's a reputation for being super nice and hospitable and all of these things that Nova Scotians like to identify with. Um, when in reality, like our, our province can be very, very, very violent and has a history of that. And this is not the first example. Nova Scotia, where you live in Nova Scotia has always determined your health. And it has, it has to do with environmental racism and the connection between marginalized communities and landfills and waste management. And even like, in, if you look at a map of Nova Scotia and where primarily black and indigenous communities live in the province, 
next to every single one of those communities is a landfill or waste management facility that doesn't even only deal with the waste from those communities it deals with all of our collective waste and all of our it like all of our garbage and it's so it's so undeniable that there is a clear connection between the placement of these plants and of these landfills and marginalized communities like that is environmental racism and it's so hidden and you can't even get white people in nova scotia to recognize that because they can't see it in front of their face because they were strategically placed away from their communities and like even like in the 40s shelbourne and nova scotia which shelbourne nova scotia is used on like every postcard tourism nova scotia loves to profit off it as like the cute like little fisher fisherman's town where you can you know have like the scenic houses on the water and like the lighthouse and all of that good stuff that nova scotia loves to claim and identify with but like shelbourne is a community a primarily black community where um these a lot of people settled when slaves were seeking refuge in nova scotia and this has become um, one of the main sites in nova scotia for dump like for a dump and all of the surrounding towns landfills go to this dump and the waste was not sorted like there was medical dump medical waste in there from like body parts and like hazardous chemicals and like just everything that was absolutely atrocious and eventually this like large mountain of waste just grew so big that the city set it on fire and then you look at this community now years later and every single like every single household in the community has multiple family members who have had cancer or currently have cancer like the health effects are undeniable and nobody talks about it and even like like serena was mentioning too with like picto landing first nations and the northern pulp mill there the cancer rates in in that area are astonishing and it doesn't even like you don't have to be even looking at just indigenous issues to see that everyone in the surrounding area is impacted by cancer in the like it's not it's not choosing you can be white <laughs> living in this area and you're still going to get cancer from the environmental racism but you're getting it and you're affected by it because you live very close to an indigenous community and the government decided that an indigenous community deserved to have this plant next to them that is the like that is the issue that people aren't seeing is that these these things are strategic and okay so this kind of cycle of ignorance in in nova scotia makes it easier like when we don't address these instances of environmental racism and how they're affecting marginalized communities in Nova Scotia so directly when we don't when we're ignorant to that and we don't address them and we don't call them out then it makes it easier for the province to ignore the issues that are happening in these communities and deny interventions such as social welfare and healthcare and human rights and policy to support this and not to mention the lack of accountability on behalf of the federal government um, also the provincial government, but I mean, Justin Trudeau has done nothing other than make a tweet about it. So that's not really helping every, anybody there. I think it's a lot un easier to understand racism within Canada when you look at the history of the country itself and needing to understand those systemic roots in which this country was created on, on black bodies and indigenous land. 
Um, and to understand now, I, I can understand why people are conditioned to accept crumbs from the governments and institutions we pay for. Grace, this is something Grace and I talk about all the time of we even people with like the littlest bit of privilege are so okay with nothing. And, and it, it, they're just told that that's how they should live. And I was even talking to my mom about this yesterday though of, um, she, my mom, my parents aren't, don't have a traditional, but they, they were told that they shouldn't have a house. They were told they shouldn't have a car. They were told they shouldn't have education. They were told they weren't worthy of these certain things and they were meant to believe it. So my parents just never went for this stuff because that's how things are. They were, they never thought that they could buy a mortgage. They never thought that they could have, um, have things of luxury, I guess. And that's just the way it is because of how they were viewed in society. And so no matter what you look like or what class though you belong to, you need to realize that social structures have dictated your quality of life based on your ability to live within these parameters, no matter who you are. And you need to recognize that. I hear this when people are like, oh, like, and it's such a dumb stat altogether, but oh, white people are killed way more by the cops, white people, all this. This is like something that has been prominent within these conversations. You should be angry too then. This shouldn't be happening. That, that You should be angry that the state has that much control Anyone's over bodies, that, that people, they just have this power to kill people out of nothing. You should, like, we need to look at the roots of the problems and to understand what's actually going on. And how connected they are how connected, especially the states in Canada, all created on the same bullshit. <laughs> that's why we need a green just recovery from COVID. <laughs> and that's where we have mm. to, we have to look at this history and we need to see, we were at the step standpoint this summer of, um, we froze with COVID. We froze and there, the, everything, society froze, economy froze. And what did that say about the world we were living that it wasn't resilient that it does not have the power to stay in with this stay in the way it has been going for so long it needs to change and we need to build in a way that is in a way that is aware of human priorities in this life <laughs> and it also just to plug this really quick showed us how there's no future for oil in this country or anywhere um and how we need to demand an energy transition right now we know we we know that the technology exists for us to like save not like this sounds so dramatic but the technology exists for us to save the world with an energy transition while we can also address all of these issues through socioeconomic and like socially Oh, it's not okay, even save the world. It. Sorry, when you saying that, the world, the world will save itself. At the end of the day, Mother Earth will save itself. It's the power we need to be able to save ourselves as humanity. Yeah. And because she will stay, we will be gone though if we don't look at how we are practicing right now and see the fucking consequences of these actions. Yeah. But, but and, and and but and I and I say that as something like that's something me and Grace need to do, but that's what this these conversations always sometimes put us into that we are the reason for the destruction of the planet and sometimes you need to step back and you do need to position yourselves in those conversations too but you also need to know that you you don't have the power to have the destruction of the planet just on our own shoulders and no it's the top one percent it's the corporations it's the government this is where we need to start then and we act like we we know that it's even going to be amazing for the economy when we transition from fossil fuels and people are going to thrive economically but people are just scared of decentralizing the power of energy and or the power over energy you know a transition to renewable energy 
is going to require more community managed um, energy systems and more, you know, decentralized decentralized grids and access to energy through a community basis and looking at community energy needs and looking at you know how do we localize these kind of things which takes power away from the few very few people who currently control the entire world's access to energy <laughs> like it's it is people are so scared of just giving up that little wee bit of power like i promise you're still going to be loaded <laughs> we just want to you know give people the ability to live that's like when people with land back and they're they're so scared we actually have to give our house back we no we just want to have the autonomy to make the decisions on the what is happening with the land in which we are people just need to look at things with a critical eye yeah, like i i don't know about you i'd rather pay my taxes um to <laughs> to indigenous people to be stewards of the land than uh to the government yeah like ontario parks i find that so funny when i go to ontario park i'm like this should be literally a community running this i just we need to be looking at infrastructure of our systems and our in our our social services and those types of things too. We need to be questioning them and where they're coming from and how they came to be. Yeah. Why Why do we think we need conservation officers? Conservation it only exists because white settlers came and destroyed the environment that was here that had been prospering for thousands and fucking centuries like for so long. <laughs> the only reason conservation is a thing is because we were like, oh crap, we screwed this up pretty badly. Let's implement a very small amount of money into um, trying to fix it. When the solution has been there the entire time, the land just needs to go back to, it's fucking like, <laughs> it's like the people that own it and have lived there for thousands of years and have been upkeeping that land. Like it's, it's such a simple, it's a, such a simple solution. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. It's so, it's almost like it's unfathomable. Like when we have these conversations and like knowing that the solutions are there and knowing that like we know what to do and it's like, you just need common sense to know like, like where we need to go from here. And, and so it's just, it's just crazy that the societal constructs that we've been in have like, like led us to believe that we can't, we can't make these changes. We can't think outside of the box. We can't, Make the, I don't know. It's just crazy. It silos us. It silos us. And that's what the government, that's what the state, they want us to be individualistic when really in reality, our, people are not meant to be individualists. We're meant to share. We're meant to collaborate. We're meant to work together and be together. Like even my people, we lived in houses together. We all, like our, our clans were all together. And so that's the type of energy I'm going to take back. We are people power and this is what's going the neoliberal state makes you feel like you are responsible for anything, um, anything that happens in your life, good or bad. And if something bad is happening to you, it must be your fault, with, which completely takes the, takes the onus off of the state and makes you embody it and think that there's something wrong with you when maybe in reality, you know, the system isn't working the way it should be. And there's an, a barrier that has been strategically and systemically placed in front of you that is preventing you from whether, whether it's preventing you from getting a promotion or from getting food or from getting a house, that is a systemic barrier that should never have been there. It was placed there with a purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people are kind of, you know, unable to see sometimes is how strategic and charged these things are. It wasn't an accident that these structures marginalize black and indigenous and people of color. It was purposeful right yeah yeah and thank you for spreading this awareness because like i think 
like like you mentioned, like we're not educated on these topics. We don't learn about them in elementary school. Like so much of what I've learned is just like coming to university and having these experiences and like talking to other people about it, right? So it's it's just crazy that we don't learn about this and, and it's something that is literally affecting each one of us in such a complex way. Um, so I guess kind of my next question is, we've, we've t- covered so many topics and you guys have given so much valuable information where do where do you start where do you go from here where do listeners who want to like get involved with indigenous communities or the energy transition or anything like that where where do they begin well i think the first thing you need to do is we all need to realize that you know we're never we're never going to be the most educated we're never going to know everything and that it's a process um so it's just you know and you have to be you have to sustain yourself and you have to be continuing continuously wanting to know more and wanting to seek out the perspectives that you're not finding yourself um, being exposed to. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think like even identifying where the, like where this kind of action and where, um, where grassroots organization is happening in your community. Um, I think, you know, whether you want to be getting involved in, politics or um, getting involved in, you know, nonprofits or other organizations that are being mobilized within a community, things pop up all the time. Um, Social media is such a great way to stay connected to local activists or local organizers within your community. And honestly, it's just about really building that support system. I think actually, first thing, first thing you need to do is find a buddy who you can chat about this stuff with, all the time, bounce ideas off of each they'll other. They'll come with you to rallies. They'll come with you to protests. They'll literally help you pick up elders for the protests you're <laughs> um, holding. Uh, you need to have people support in that. And there's, I think that's the first thing of. So much of the world is going to tell you that what you're standing up for is wrong. And so much of the world is going to be against you in this fight, in, in the protest, in whatever it is. So you really need a support system that reminds you that what you're fighting for and what you believe in um, is is just and is the way it should be and is is you know a, a step towards a future where everything is a little bit simpler for everybody and everybody is afforded that just kind of livable ease that you know those of us privileged in society and people in positions of privilege are just kind of like expected to expected to have i think it's that idea of like the idea that you have the ability to not give to not give a shit about these issues is obviously a privilege in and of itself so just i don't know um and i think uh, before you go and you set your sights on what you want to do you need to Grace was saying you you will never be educated enough, but you also need to be educating yourself on that set. You can't be relying on Black Indigenous people of color to be fronting your education and your mm-hmm. knowing of what's going on. We have so much access within this generation right now to information, literally like overload of it. Take that as you will and read. Take and start having those conversations with your own family. Like I said before, everyone has their own role within these 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 things so you can't be just talking to the same person over about again but you need to if having that conversation with your parent is how you're going to be starting your sets today that's a great place to start I think too and then from going from there I 
I also like you have to recognize too that your presence isn't inherently helpful all the time. Um, being, you know, being conscious that you know, we're, you're going to get something wrong, you're going to mess up, but also being conscious of really turning to the, to the people leading on the front lines and leading these charges, turning to them and kind of tuning into what they're needing from you, whether, you know, you're give, doing a supply drop to people um, being land, defender, land defenders on their own land and protecting their title and indigenous sovereignty, whether you're showing up to a protest with hand sanitizer and masks and water or whatever it is, it needs to be from us. Like you have to recognize what your position is and recognize where you're able to help. Because if you just come in, you know, feeling like you're going to solve all the problems because you're the white, you're a white person who's been enlightened, like that's not going to help anybody. In fact, it's only just replicating a white savior complex that just <laughs> teaches us that, you know, you're inherently, your presence is inherently helpful because you're a white person. That's something that's ingrained. That's, I mean, that is a whole other thing we could talk about. Um, <laughs> don't even have time to get into me to we, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, recognizing your positionality within, within something and locating the, the most productive way for, for you to um, participate in something and support something. And even at the end of the day, asking, where yeah. do where do you see me fit into this? What can I help with? Where, what can I do? It's as simple as just asking a question from someone who is on the front line for someone who's an organizer for someone, because at the end of the day, that helps them so much. It, that's what, at the end of the day, they need support. They need that support network too. So how can you be able to provide those supports to those leading the charge? That's great advice. Yeah. And, and so many of these organizations, and I mentioned this before, um, are so willing and like grateful to receive that, that support, right? Because like, there's so many arms and there's so many calls to action that needs to get done. And so like, in any way that you can help I'm sure that they're going to be receive they're going to be receiving that with open arms. Um, do you guys have any last words of wisdom or anything else you want to, you want to discuss or say? Um, honestly, I think if, if anything, recognize how powerful you are and how, like, it's not, it's so cliche, but like every, everybody's voice does make a difference and recognize that, you know, when, once you see yourself as, once you step away from the internalization of, you know, being that angry woman that society is telling you, you are once you step outside of that and you recognize how powerful it is to be an angry woman in a society that tries to fit women into this little box. Um, once you step into that, it's almost, it's like you're kind of reborn into something that is you, you have embodied the kind of revolution that you're seeking and that you want to see. Um, and just like taking that further and seeing, seeing where that will take you because it's, it's really, it's really fucking powerful. <laughs> I think for me, um, just through all my experiences from when I was younger and like within my, my own life, my own family, my own academics, my own organizing, all of that, everything at the end of the day always leads me to understand that the power is within the people. And that is where you need to set your sights on is creating more room, more spaces for people to have these conversations, for people to feel safe within these contexts, for people to think these types of ways. We just need to provide different kinds of platforms of experiences for people that 
I had never had when I was growing up necessarily. Um, to feel that support that we've been talking about so much, to feel that network, to feel that there is a greater movement than just being in your silo, being by yourself, and that you're not the only one thinking these things all summer. There's so many more people out there and there's infrastructure being built to be able to talk about these things. And there's so much, I think as much as I, we might be cynical about the world, which the world fucking sucks, but the people in it, there are so many great people in it who want to change and which will change the world BC. And you just need to find those people. And we can mobilize each other. We can lean on each other. You know, young people are going to be the ones that make all of these changes. And we hold so much of that power in our ability to be new voters, our ability to be entering the energy sector, our ability to be the ones coming in to replace these people in power. Whatever it is, we we will be the ones inevitably either making that change or upholding the status quo. So I, it's up to us whether or not we want to do that. Mm -hmm. We have the power. Um, yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode and for all of your valuable information and your personal journey and your resources. It's so important to, to discuss these issues. And like you said, like start the conversation, have the platform to, to talk about these things. Um, if anybody wants to like get involved with student energy or you guys, is that okay if I like link your platforms below? course sure. link yeah link student energy the climate crisis all of that fun stuff okay amazing um thank you guys so much i, I don't i don't even know what to say i'm blown away you guys like see all my expectations now Alyssa, for holding this type of platform and bringing these stories to the forefront you yeah. are very special and i hope this continues on for you well we're so excited to watch the tiny app of this podcast grow you're thank killing you. it thank you guys well thank you so much Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tiny Activist Podcast. I love creating content for you guys. As this is my first time making a podcast and using this platform, I would love it if you left a comment, review, or suggestion. If you like what you heard, please subscribe for more content. And you can also follow us on social media at Tiny Activist Podcast on Instagram and at Tiny underscore podcast on Twitter to stay up to date on episodes, guest speakers, and more. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.